Father, take my words and speak with them. Take our minds and think with them. And take our hearts and set them on fire with love for thee. For Jesus' sake, amen. I have an acquaintance who tells a story, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but uh, this is the way he tells the story. Some friends invited him to a restaurant, a restaurant he did not altogether like. Uh, he didn't like it because their silverware and their glasses were frequently dirty upon being served. So on this occasion, he was invited to this men's group. The waitress came and took the drink orders, you know, orange juice, coffee, water. He said, I'd like water with uh, some ice. And please, ma'am, if you could, make sure I have a clean glass. And so she went off and she came back and she had her tray, but she didn't put the glasses down right away. Instead, she said, all right, now, which one of you wanted the clean glass? Now, I don't know if she's being passively aggressive, pushing back on that fellow, or whether it was just an honest statement that this restaurant really doesn't care about the quality of its stuff. Uh, I'm going to interpret that second way because that's what I want to speak about. I remember one church where I was serving, and uh, the acolyte apparently had started buttoning his vestments up from the bottom, but by the time he got to the top, he was off one button, it was very obvious. And I looked at that, I wasn't gonna say anything. And then I looked down and he was wearing phosphorescent tennis shoes with yellow shoelaces, very long Gary shoelaces, and they were untied and dragging about an 18 inch shoelace open. And I said, uh, uh, I don't want you to trip or anything, but did you know that your shoelace was untied? And he looked down, he shrugged his shoulders and he said, whatever. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about me and I'm talking about you. And the question here that I'm after is this, do I bring excellence to what I do or do I bring an attitude of whatever? Please do not misunderstand me. I am not talking about perfectionism. An insistence upon perfectionism is a burden that nobody should be forced to bear. The danger of perfectionism is that we think we've obtained it, leading to Phariseeism, I'm better than you are, or that we think we fall woefully short of perfectionism, leading to depression, I'm no good. But what I'm after here is, is what? It's the word that St. Paul uses in the epistle reading, Erete, translated excellence or translated sometimes virtue. He writes in Philippians 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are commendable, if there be any erete, any excellence, any virtue, if there be anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Let's turn our thoughts first to the gospel reading today from John chapter 2. We're looking here at Jesus's first miracle. It is the story of the turning of the water into wine. Now there's many things we could focus on in this passage. There's Jesus's generosity of abundance. 
Each of the stone jars contained 20 to uh, 30 gallons times six jars. Oh my goodness, that's 120 to 180 gallons. That is a lot of wine. And everyone's agreed that this would have been turned over as a gift to uh, the wedding couple, a very generous nest egg to get started with. Or we could look at the wise distancing of Jesus from his mother, which all people need to distance from their parents. We could look at the nature of this gift miracle, as C.S. Lewis calls it in his book. But I want to focus on this. I want to focus on the quality of Jesus's miracle. The story tells it very clearly. They're having a wedding party. Towns in that time in that place would have been 200 to 500 people. Everyone would have been invited to the party. Big party, they're drinking the wine, and oh my gosh, they ran out. A major embarrassment for the family, which in this culture would never be forgotten. When they are in their 90s, people are saying, there's the couple that didn't have enough wine. Jesus steps up to the plate. He performs the miracle, filling the six jars of water to the brim with water, changing it into wine. But then there's this little interesting detail. They bring it out to the master of ceremonies. Uh, the phrase master of ceremonies actually comes from this time and this place. He's the one in charge of saying, okay, you're gonna make the toast, and now it's time for you to make for the first dance of the couple and the dance of the parents and managing the whole feet, feast. That included uh, serving the wine. And here we have the story of the wine being served. There's a little hesitation. Why aren't we getting wine out here? The steward comes forward and says, okay, we did get some wine. Here it is. He knows about the miracle, but the master of ceremonies does not know about the miracle. And so at that point he says, oh my goodness, this wine is good. You know, usually people serve the best wine first, and then when they get a little bit lightheaded, their palate isn't so discerning, they, they serve the lesser wine first. What uh, my great aunt Mary, who was a very proper Victorian lady, even though she lived in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, she was never drunk her entire life, but she would be on occasion what she called pleasantly buzzed. And so when you're ple pleasantly buzzed, you really don't care what kind of wine you're getting. Serve, serve anything. But the guy says, uh, you save the best wine for last. Quality wine. Listen to what Leon Morris says on Philippians 4, 8, but he ends up himself jumping over to Matthew, I'm sorry, to John chapter 2 to comment. The master of ceremonies was not consciously commenting on a miracle. He did not even know there had been a miracle. He was simply impressed by the taste. But John's readers will pick up the point that, John, that Jesus does not do things by halves. Not only is the wine that Jesus provides abundant in quantity, but it is of excellent quality. You know, think about Jesus the carpenter. Wouldn't you love to have a chair by Jesus the carpenter? Not because it was by Jesus, but simply because it was a good chair. When my wife and I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, we learned of an Amish 
furniture store about an hour east of the city, and we went out there and we bought the best table, kitchen table, we would ever have in our entire marriage. Uh, when we were getting rid of it, our kids were fighting over who got that table and the six chairs that went with it. They were quality chairs. Arete is translated excellence. The King James translation says virtue, but what is a virtue? A virtue is a strength or a developed skill that enables you to accomplish something. We are to have virtue in our lives. That's what St. Paul says, think, if there's any virtue, think on these things. Jeffrey Hart, a book reviewer at National Review, wrote a book two decades ago entitled Smiling Through the Cultural Catastrophe. I love that title. He writes, the Iliad and the Odyssey were part of the Greek character-shaping curriculum. The goal of the curriculum was erite, a special kind of excellence. If one combined all the excellencies of the various heroes and heroines of the Homeric poem and for a moment forgot their flaws, one could construct a model of erite. One could discuss the various excellencies and rank them according to a degree of excellence. The courage or grandeur of Achilles, the cleverness or eloquence of Odysseus, the sheer strength of Ajax, the urbanity and courage of Hector, the filial nobility of Telemachus, the moral strength, cunning, and politeness of Penelope, the courtliness and courtesy of the teenage Nausicaa, the experienced wisdom of the elderly Nestor and Mentor. Do we have heroes today that we look at? Yeah, we do, we have sports. I mean, America's very much into football and basketball. We got the Super Bowl coming up soon. There's the Winter Olympics and the other Olympics. Unfortunately, we often admire the athlete, the hero who's good on the field, but we never move beyond that to the virtue being displayed. Professional sports is, as one wag put it, 65,000 people in a stadium who desperately need exercise, watching 22 people on the field who desperately need a rest. Let me say something about sports and heroes. Why do we get revved up about sports? Why do we sit around the TV, I do, and go, wow, how'd they do? Th Carol, come here and look at the, they're gonna do the replay. Look, how does she do triple twist up in the air, comes down, lands on one leg? Oh my goodness. Those things thrill us, and they should thrill us. Because they allow us to be drawn into a celebration of excellence. My heroes as a, as a child were Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone. And my hero worship led me to imitation, as all hero worship should. As an eight and nine-year-old, I worked very hard walking to school, protecting the neighborhood from the marauding Native Americans bent on scalping the Wichita neighbors. St. Paul, in Philippians 4, our passage again, said, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, and lovely, if there's any excellence, any praise, think on these things. Why do we think on them? Because we want to make them our own. We might want to move on be 
beyond mere admiration to imitation. That's why we strive for these things. But that's going to require work. And that's why most of us fall off from making that transition to imitation. I'm editing a book right now, and don't be impressed with that. I'm editing a book right now about a biography about Lancelot Andrews, and there's a section talking about him as a preacher, and he says of himself that he was a painful preacher. Not painful in the sense that it was painful to listen to him, quite the opposite, but it means he took pains to work on his sermons. And that's what any excellence takes. It takes pains to do that triple twist, to jump up and catch that ball, to know how to come up to a high E and sing that note just perfectly right. It takes trouble. It's not an attitude of, well, whatever, or as one fellow I knew said, honestly, well, that's good enough for government work. Excellence. In the early 19th century, John Keats wrote his masterpiece, Endemion, published it, I think, in 1815. Uh, he went on the thing a lot of these 19th century uh, writers and poets did. They'd go on a retreat to an English manor house, and he was sitting together with his friend John Ruskin, and they would turn and they would read parts of their writings to one another. And Keats turned around and he wrote, a lovely thing is a great happiness. And Ruskin says, that captures the idea, but the meter doesn't work and those aren't quite the right words. And Keats says, you're right. And he went back and for another half an hour worked on it. Then he came back and he said, a beautiful thing is a great joy. And he said, well, this is improved for this reason, this improved for that reason, but it's still not quite right. He says, no, it's not. And then half an hour later, he turned to his friend John Ruskin and said, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. And John Ruskin says, perfect. That sentence will last as long as the English language is spoken. It took him an hour and a half to write that one line. It took him pains to accomplish that. Christians are to be people who strive for excellence. And why? Why do we strive for excellence? I would argue that ultimately it's about loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. that we are made in the image of God and to reflect his beauty and his excellence and that we love one another when we do excellence for one another. I'm going to have a clean glass when you come and visit me. It's a way of loving you. Or I will take pains with my sermon, etc., etc. And it's a reflection of us being made in the image of God. Think about this. When God created the world, you've all read the story in Genesis 1. At the end of each day, it says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was good. It wasn't good enough. It was good. Look. I mean, for crying out loud, we live in southern Missouri. Look at how good it is. The beauty of the trees. Those amazing rivers. Those springs. The grass that grows. The animals, the deer I see almost every day when I drive up Galloway Road to this place. They're taking their time crossing the road. 
and it's a thing of beauty. It's excellence. God made it with excellence, and we being made in his image are to reflect that excellence along the way. That's the way we love one another. I mean, I also think of this. If Jesus were to come here as a newcomer, how would we greet that newcomer? Would we offer that newcomer, Jesus, good enough? A bulletin's over there on the table. No, we would go and we'd give him the bulletin. Welcome, thank you for coming here. Your first time visiting, can I introduce you around? After the service, if you stay, I'll introduce you to the clergy. Can I get your name? We offer excellence because every person we engage is there for Jesus. There's a story written decades ago, actually it was two stories and they put them together, called Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger. Anybody remember Franny and Zoe? It's, I'm gonna remember this a little bit off, but the parents did a radio program that was very popular and eventually the two children, Franny, the girl, and Zoe, the boy, also got on the radio program, and they were big hits. And then the parents were sick or out of the scene, and it was just the two kids doing the radio program one time, but the boy was going through a depression. He had broken up with his girlfriend, and his life wasn't going anywhere, and he, he, he wasn't gonna do well on the program. His sister knew it, and she said, no, do it well. Do it well. Let's give, get on the radio and give him our best. And he looked uncertain about that. And then she said words that just pierces me to the heart. She said, do it for the fat lady. Now, who is the fat lady? The parents had said that there is some woman out there whose world is ordinary. But we, when we do our once a week radio program, we bring joy and happiness to her life. For an hour, she is in delight because of us. And so Zoe says, uh, uh, Franny says to Zoe, do it for her. That's excellence. That's a way of loving one another. I could say so much about this, but uh, I will simply close with a poem by Charles Osgood. Some preachers of teachers of homiletics, they never close the sermon with a poem, but this one knocks it out of the park. So uh, it really gets this conflict between excellence and whatever right. Charles Osgood writes, there once was a pretty good student who sat in a pretty good class and was taught by a pretty good teacher who always let pretty good pass. He wasn't terrific at re reading, he wasn't a whiz bang at math, but for him education was leading right down a pretty good path. He didn't find school too exciting, but he wanted to do pretty well and he did have some trouble with writing, and nobody taught him to spell. When doing arithmetic problems, pretty good was regarded as fine. Five plus five needn't always add up to 10. A pretty good answer was nine. The pretty good class that he sat in was part of a pretty good school, and the student was not an exception. On the contrary, he was the rule. The pretty good school that he went to was there in a pretty good town, and nobody there seemed to notice he couldn't tell a verb from a noun. The pretty good student, in fact, was part of a pretty good mob. And the first time he knew what he lacked was when he looked for a pretty good job. It was then when he sought a position. 
he discovered that life can be tough. And he soon had a sneaky suspicion pretty good might not be good enough. The pretty good town in our story was part of a pretty good state, which had pretty good aspirations and prayed for a pretty good fate. There once was a pretty good nation, pretty proud of the greatness it had, which learned much too late, if you want to be great, pretty good is in fact pretty bad. Let us pray. Father, you have made all things and made them well. Put that spirit of delight and excellence in our hearts and in our imaginations that in all that we do, we might offer to you and one another our best and thereby glorify your name and love one another. For Jesus' sake, amen. <laughs>